Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with Leo Flowers. Today, uh, I'm joined by Dr. Now, is Drea Letamendi, right? Like, that's what you prefer to go by? I do, yes. Okay. Drea. All right. Because I was like, man, I saw Andrea on some sites, and Drea, I was like, uh-oh. Oh yes. Well, I know the name thing is like a big deal for you, right? Because you also use a nickname, mm-hmm. and um, I... I think I came to a point where my, my first name it's Andrea, but it's mispronounced so many times. And, uh, Drea is, um, fairly, uh, sometimes there's a mistake. Like if I go to Starbucks, I get Tria or Tia or something, but for the most part, people get it right. And it just feels good when people get your name right, you know? So <laughs> I've been gradually getting, you know, just going with the the nickname and fully embracing it. And so for people that have been, you know, going to my website or kind of following me in different social media, they're seeing that I'm, I'm gradually uh, going with the nickname. So I appreciate your asking for sure. Yeah. The, the Michaels of the world will never understand our pain. Uh, But a quick introduction as to who you are and why I'm excited to have you on. Uh, Dr. Drea Letamendi, am I saying your last name correctly? You are, yes. Is a clinical psychologist who received her bachelor's degree from Cornell University and her PhD in clinical psychology from UCSD. Dr. Letamendi uh, currently serves as UCLA, at UCLA as the Associate Director of Mental Health Training, Intervention, and Response for Residential Life. Her primary role as a mental health advisor and educator to students, staff, and faculty, and as a consultant to campus partners in the areas of student wellness and resilience. Dr. Letamendi developed and implemented UCLA's suicide prevention model. In 2019, she was recognized as the interim director of the Resilience Center at UCLA called RISE, which is aimed at providing prevention and educational programs to students interested in improving their emotional wellness. She extends her professional work into public health education by intersecting psychological science with superheroes. For over 10 years, she has served as a psychological consultant for comic book writers and other creatives in television and film. Using art and narrative to teach psychology to wide audiences, Dr. Letamendi has led seminars and panels at conventions such as Comic-Con and Geek Week. As a pop cultural enthusiast and public health educator, Dr. Letamendi has been featured in news pieces and documentaries for MTV, CNN, and Warner Brothers, DC Comics. She shared her story of resilience in her TEDx talk called Capes, Cowls, and Courage, which can be found on YouTube. Put your hands together for Dr. Letamende. Thank you so much. I feel like we're about done here. That's just yeah, about done. That's it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> um, I and I discovered you because I went to Comic Con for the first time this year, and with the intention, the whole, the entire reason I went was to see your talk, and then my uh, it didn't schedule out uh, the way I needed to have to leave <laughs> earlier than I wanted to, uh, but I was like, I have to have her on because one, I'm a huge Batman fan, like that's my favorite comic book character, uh, and then. To the fact that you are combining uh, 
psychology and uh and superheroes together i mean it's like what let's let's talk about it um so but first i just want to do also want to congratulate you on passing one million downloads thank for your you podcast. we started off 2020 with a bang like we we were anticipating we'd maybe reach it around the end of the year and it was really nice to um to get to that milestone. I mean, you know, podcasting is, um, a lot of work, your heart and soul is in it. You know, there's a lot of imposter syndrome. There's a lot of, um, self doubt wondering, especially when you're talking about like mental health themes, like are people really out there? Do they really listen? Do, do they really care about these things? And, um, you know, I know sometimes in your show, you talk about, uh, people writing in or messaging you, um, and, and just getting that experience that what you're saying, what you're putting out there really impacts people and, and, and really makes a difference. So yeah, it was, it was wonderful to get there. I'm so sorry. I just realized for whatever reason, this radio behind me cut on <laughs> randomly. It's like, what is that noise? This old I figured you're doing what you, you know, like there's probably something you're taking care of. I was like, what is that random noise in the background? Um, now, you did press record, right? Yes, yes. I, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, where you have this amazing podcast episode and then you go, either I didn't press record or I didn't cut their mic on. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I've been there. I've been there more than once. You'd think that after the one time, yeah. be like, lesson learned, but... And usually it's like one of the most, it's like the best conversation you've had and you're so happy you captured it. And then you realize, yeah. It's a wrap. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for the recognition. It's been a wonderful journey. And um, the Arkham Sessions uh, started off as a podcast that, um, uh, that I think in the beginning, um, my partner and I at the time, uh, uh, we just wanted to kind of like, uh, talk about Batman. And he noticed that a lot of times I would refer to Batman when I'm talking about mental health themes. And there was a documentary, it's called necessary evil and it's by, um, Warner brothers and DC comics. And, uh, they asked me to be an on camera, um, commentator about villains and how certain villains are likable. And like, what are those common features? What are the attributes that draws to them? And, and why does that happen? And I think villains and dark heroes are really fascinating topics because um, it gives us kind of like that safe space to go into some of these themes and and concepts around um, self-destruction and harming other people and, you know, thoughts that we have that I think for, for a lot of us are kind of normal. But what happens when it gets extreme? Like, what are the lessons learned from these characters? So um, after I did that documentary we decided like, let's put these thoughts into, um, uh, into audio form. Like let's create a podcast that bridges and intersects, um, the world of Batman and psychological science. And so how we do our show is that we start with the, an episode, usually it started with the, the animated series. So we started with the episode, talked a little bit about what the episode, uh, 
brought up as far as like its story. And then we lifted the psychology from it. And it's so fascinating because you'll start with like, yeah, Batman and Robin are like patrolling the streets and Catwoman, whatever. You kind of start out with a real fun conversation. And then next thing you know, you're talking about head trauma, um, suicide, um, really destructive relationships. I mean, the Joker and Harley Quinn, for instance, there's a lot of intimate partner violence and, um, and those are really heavy topics. Um, but through the, um, the vessel or through the container of an audio podcast, you have the opportunity to really get in there and engage people who may not otherwise have access to that really important information. Can you, because you talk, brought up head trauma and suicide, how, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a heavy comic book uh, person. How, is, how does that come up within that realm? And then how do you discuss it so it, it, to tie it into us as human beings? Mm-hmm. We, well, we, we often kind of start with understanding the characters. And with Batman, of course, um, a character that you and I know very well, this is a this is a man who repeatedly puts himself in really dangerous, risky situations. And we, we recognize that he is, um, he's a risk taker. He is a sensation seeker. He's, he's had a history of trauma and his way to work things out is to make purpose of that. And what he's found is that maybe there's a relationship between, um, you know, for lack of, of better words for like, there's a relationship between, um, being in a violent interaction, being punched, punching other people, and uh, essentially working his trauma out through those interactions. Now, the bigger purpose, of course, is he wants to make Gotham City safe. And so he believes that that servicing um, his community involves getting directly in the line of fire. Um, but you mentioned the relationship between suicide and some of these interactions, especially violence. And, and we do talk about how, um, it, our, in, our interests, our, um, curiosity and even our propensity to get into risky situations and, and feel physical pain and, and put our, our lives at risk, um, is self-destructive. And maybe that's, that's a piece of the suicide continuum, right? Like there's something about, a willingness to be in that space where life and death become sort of fragile and, and intertwined and, and, um, the, the concept of death is a, a part of Batman's mission. Almost he's, he's willing to die for these things. And so the, the concept of suicide or the topic of suicide comes up quite a bit when it comes to this character. And then, you know, you also have other characters like the Joker who take it way to the extreme and it's almost like a mirror. It's an extreme mirror up to Batman. So the Joker, um, not only has a willingness to be self-destructive and, um, is chasing after Batman just to, to be in those violent situations with him. There's kind of an interesting dynamic there, but, um, we also see in like in the films as well as in the animated series that, um, the Joker has a pretty strong willingness to die. And that's kind of a, it's a hard topic when we really get into that. Like, what does that mean, um, to experience, um, euphoria and intermingle that with, um, risk and danger? And, and what does it mean where you, someone wants to push that to the very edge and not, 
um, I would say not, I would put it this way, like not be interested in protecting their life if it comes to that. You know, it's, I just had a, um, uh, iron marathon, um, competitor on the last episode and he faced, uh, addiction and, and reading about like, not just iron marathon runners, but especially ultra marathon runners, people who put their bodies under extreme, uh, duress and stress, uh, there usually is an underlying, um, uh, wanting of, uh, you know, accepting of death and, uh, and maybe even, uh, w- w- wanting it on some level. Uh, there's, uh, some research that shows that, you know, the more that you, um, the more physical pain that you endure and the more that you put your body through that pain, the more you, you tend to disregard your body. So then, uh, pain is not a deterrent for you anymore. Like it would be for the average person who had it. That's why I think like you, you see such a history of trauma with people who have attempted or completed, uh, and right. uh, ending their life. So th- there is something to be said about the fact that Batman is constantly getting into these fights, into these battles and showing a complete, not a d- complete disregard because he, he does armor up and he does train himself. But uh, there's there's something to be said about the the, the risk taking and uh, um, and the constant the constant battle, the self and the self destruction. There are two yeah there are two really strong predictors for suicide attempts, not necessarily suicide risk, but the attempts themselves, uh-huh. which um, you know we should be concerned about. One is a lack of belongingness, um, which I think a lot of us feel. Um, you know, some of us feel that more frequently than others, but it's a common experience. And the second is capacity. And to get a little bit um, more descriptive about that, it's exactly what you said, the capacity, meaning um, the ability to experience that much pain, either from practice or from previous violent, risky situations, mm-hmm. almost this um, willingness to put your body through endure something, um, so extreme that, um, that the attempt is, uh, completed. And so this is important, right? We need to pay attention to the individuals that we care about, the individuals in our practice and in our lives who are really kind of, um, pushing themselves toward that edge and better understanding why it is they might do that. Yeah. You you see it in, uh, um, uh, especially who are addicts and drink a lot or overeat. It's a, uh, we, we, we kind of just isolate that to, uh, their binge eaters or binge drinkers, but there's a self harm in that. And they, and they are increasing their capacity to endure the pain, uh, that comes with that. And, and the irony is, is that a lot of them are doing it so that they can, they can feel accepted by the social group so that, you know, it's like that person who's like, well, if I'm going to go to a party, I need to have a couple of drinks so I can, you know, so it, the, the two definitely seem to go hand in hand that, that wanting to uh, feel connected and to belong to a group. And then, um, but then it, like, what are you doing to experience that? Like, are, are you know, the, the harming of yourself just to, to be a part of something uh, bigger than you and to feel connected. Absolutely. And I'm sure you see that, you know, working at UCLA, um, 
with college students, especially, which is I'm sure that's probably why you started the whole suicide prevention model there. Uh, college students are coming from these small towns uh, where they knew everybody or at least felt connected to the town. And then they're thrown into, uh, you know, Los Angeles and, and UCLA and is, and is you know, now they're, they're the small fish in the big pond. Even if you come from a big city, L.A. is still like, a, what? I'm from Chicago. And when I moved out here, I was like, what is this? You know? <laughs> oh, uh, okay. So, <laughs> so do, you, do you think L.A. So I have this kind of concept of L.A. Because I, I grew up in L.A. County and then I went to graduate school in San Diego. So yeah. San Diego is actually chill. Like if you go if you live in San Diego, it, it, it really is a little bit more laid back. People are friendly. Um, the, the institutions are very academic, very intellectual, but people really enjoy each other's company. Now, L.A., my theory is that we we say we're chill, but everybody is not like we're hustling hard. We have like five <laughs> different side hustles. Our main jobs are toxic. We're burnt out. Um now, I, most of my interactions are lovely. I, I really love living in the city, but I don't. I wonder if we can just be real with that. Like we're not, we're not chill. I'm not. You know, I've I've just come to that realization about myself uh, and LA. Uh, you know, I thought I was like a, a type B personality, and I realized I'm type A. Masking is uh, is type B. I'm not chill. I'm I'm constantly even like you know what made me realize it yoga. Because, you know, I take uh, I go to yoga classes and I got to have my spot and I don't want anybody in my spot. And if somebody's in my spot, I'm not happy about <laughs> it's just like and I'm like rushing to yoga and I'm rushing out of yoga. And it's, it's all the opposite things. And like like I meditate, but I have to I have to meditate a certain way and a certain time. And it, it's all it's all convoluted. So you're definitely right. Like this whole uh, be calm. And, uh, right. (laughs) It's so, it's so interesting. Um, and certainly, you know, tying this back to UCLA, I was absolutely over the moon to start working at UCLA about two years, two and a half years ago to be asked to take on this really kind of, um, innovative position to, to, to bring mental health into different spaces on campus. And we have a really, really very, um, uh, robust and prolific, uh, mental health clinic on campus. And I was excited to take on a role that would be serving different populations in different places outside of, of that kind of traditional setting. Like we really, we're not dismantling the system. We're, we're like really, um, expanding it. We're creating a continuum of care where students can access different types of services in different ways. And that runs the gamut from in-person face-to-face therapy to, um, you know, telehealth, telepsychiatry, um, the resilience center where you can go and do yoga. Hopefully you can find your favorite spot there, but, um, you're welcome. You know, everyone's welcome. And the resilience center is a, um, kind of a wellness hub to address all those different, uh, needs, not just the emotional ones, but the physical ones. Um, so that would be mindfulness and yoga and, um, even like guided nap time, like just come in and have a 20 minute guided nap because, you know, students are stressed and they want an opportunity to get away from that, um, the busyness of their academic lives. And, um, and LA is kind of hard to, to, 
to spread those messages of wellness because we're constantly kind of like um, dodging the um, the sort of concepts and sometimes the performance of self-care. Um, and so I appreciate what you're saying as far as like being you know, examining what we're doing when we, when we practice self-care, because I think a lot of times we see, um, a commodification of self-care. We see consumerism around self-care. Um, certainly in this, in this kind of city, if you can afford the, the various, you know, healing practices, um, you have access to certain things. And I think that having a real conversation about, um, how to sometimes self-care is performative, sometimes self-care is commodified, um, but, you know, candid self-care, um, you know, really authentic self-care is just right for you. And I think it's important to have those conversations and, and to address, um, kind of the realness behind that in order for us to, to get into what, uh, what that means to be preserving our well-being. Yeah, when when you talk about well being, you know, I turned forty four this year, and I, I'm I'm realizing the the um, the value of taking care of myself, and then how little I knew about taking care of myself, especially um, and not to go back to college, but because that's you're at UCLA, um, and that I realized like college teaches so many bad habits because you know it's the idea of staying up late to cram for an exam, eat what, you know, you're stuffing your face with snacks and sodas and, and things like that. Um, you know, the, the, the TV to sleep whenever you want to, like you're, you're on no schedule at all. You're just kind of doing things as they, uh, as they pop up. Um, and then you get out into the real world and then you go, Oh, I need to be on a schedule. I need to have a morning routine and a night routine. And I shouldn't be up late cramming for things and, and eating at those, at those crazy hours. But you just had four years of the eating and drinking and the blah, blah, blah. And now you have to undo all that stuff. And there's, there's really no transition between, uh, between college and the world. Yeah. It's hard to, you know, the sleep, sleep hygiene is so uninteresting. Like students, um, <laughs> students no, like, it's like, Hey, let's talk about sleep, get more sleep. Um, and you know, science is there. Uh, sleep is so, um, really constructive. It's neurobiologically healing. It's restorative. It's helpful for stress, but it also is helpful for learning. And, and students know, I, I think there's a, there's a, um, uh, one thing, sorry, this is my cat deciding that sitting on my lap is, is what needs to happen right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I think students, especially nowadays, students are extremely intuitive. I think they're, they're, um, you know, one thing I say about students is that they have, uh, they have higher or, or stronger mental health literacy than when I was in college. Absolutely. There's a willingness and an openness to talk about mental health. There's, um, there's a, um, kind of an openness to going to treatment centers. Uh, a lot of students come in with existing treatment plans or they're already taking medication. And I think that while we're seeing a rise in utilization 
of mental health services on campuses. And while we're seeing an increase in anxiety, stress, depression, uh, and and sleep disturbances, um, we are seeing that students are more likely to access services than they used to. So I think there's a positive uh, there's a positive trend that we're seeing. As the landscape changes, students are connecting with services on social media or using remote um, access to those services. And despite all the things said about Gen Z or the I generation, you know, they're not resilient or they have helicopter parents or they're, um, you know, they're they're too um they're too too woke, whatever. I'm not even sure what that one means, but I've I've heard that said about them. They are showing a lot of protective factors and a lot of willingness to seek help when uh, when they need it. And I, I think we should embrace that. I I, I love that. I want to can can we backtrack for a second because uh, earlier you like you said that there were two uh, main factors uh, that uh, attributed to suicide attempts, and that was uh, belongingness and capacity. Can right. can you can you uh, explain more about belongingness, um, and not just for college students, but just in general, so we understand what that is, and then how do we feel like we belong? You know, what's the antidote? Yeah, belongingness is really important in all of our chapters or transitions in life. And it's really that that experience that you are connected to other people um, in meaningful ways. And that may include sharing values, that may include um, uh, sharing experiences that are important to you. Um, so for in college, for instance, maybe um, sharing that educational experience, going to the same classes, living in the same uh, suite or floor of a residential community. And um, as a psychologist working in residential life, I'm finding that while that's um, less traditional than the psychologist working in, let's say, a mental health clinic or, or a hospital, um, there is that uh, I'm learning so much about how belongingness is really important to mental health and how um, those connections, those um, those relationships as they build uh, means a couple things. One is that when things are going well, people thrive and they're successful. They see success in each other. They have each other's backs. They um, look out for each other. I think that's really important in community. And the second thing is what happens when things are not going well? Mm. Somebody experienced um, a loss, a trauma, or the community experienced something difficult or adverse. And then you see how belongingness and that's really my experience a lot of times, right? Because I respond to crises or I work with individuals and students who have, um, you know, have experienced something difficult on, on campus. And I see how, um, how students will rally together or they'll, um, they'll access that sense of support from each other because they already had that sense of belongingness. Now, individually feeling that, you belong to a group or feeling that you are seen and heard and um, that you matter, that's so important to our ability to um, to stay with ourselves, to preserve ourselves, to want to thrive, right? Like 
that keeps us from wanting to give up when times are tough. So um, the last couple of years have, have really taught me so much about belongingness and why it, it really matters. You know, um, when you talked about sharing experiences helps us feel like we belong, I, I realize uh, in the moments where uh, I'm, I'm going through, a, I call them sandstorms or flare-ups, uh, my depressive episodes, um, when I, I minimize what I've done through the day. So, and I realize like a lot of people, when I talk to other people, um, you know, it's like people ask you, what'd you do today? And I'll say nothing, even though I've done 10 things, I recognize that in my head they they weren't important things. They're not, they're not important enough to talk about. They're not, they, they weren't adequate. They weren't adequate. They're uninteresting when really it's not what you done. It's the feeling behind what you've done. It's, it's, it's like, did you read a book or did you love the book that you were reading? You can't wait to share it. You know, it's like, did you walk through a park or did you smell the rose? It's it's like, what was the uh, like, you know, I was walking the other day and um, and I see Asian women hugging a tree. And, you know, if I hugged a tree, I like I'd be like, what? But, you know, but I could <laughs> tell like they were hugging it with such. Like they were, they felt so, you could tell they felt so connected to like them in the tree were having this moment yeah. in the park. And, uh, and, and I was like, I would never do such a thing. But the other night I was walking, I was like, I'm gonna hug a tree. Did you hug a tree? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then was as it? I'm hugging a tree, I'm like, oh, I understand why you hugged a Was tree it good? Tree. Did it? <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Well, you know what you know what I realize it's like is I realize is is no different than walking on grass barefoot. That you know, like there's just something grounding, there's something soothing about touching nature and about touching something that's bigger than you. It's like this tree that's been here for hundreds of years or has seen so much. It's not going to move. It's not judging you. It's not it's not anything. But somehow you feel um, connected to it in some, you know, strange way where when you look at somebody doing it, you're like, I don't get it. But then when you do it, you go, oh, it's kind of like when you hug someone who doesn't want to be hugged. And then if you hold it long enough. You feel them give in to it, and then they and then they start crying. They're like, "Oh, I need." <laughs> it's like they didn't know they needed the hug. Absolutely, I didn't, yeah. When they experienced it. Yeah. It, it. They realized that they needed that connection. Yeah, I yeah. didn't realize I needed oh, the tree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm thinking. I'm wondering if I need the tree. <laughs> I don't think I've ever hugged a tree ever. Yeah, I, you know, and I don't know if it's I don't know what uh, I think they are. Chi I think the Asians I see do it are I think Chinese people uh, do it. I'm not sure because it's not I know Koreans aren't hugging trees and it's not Thai. And I know you have Ecuadorian and half Chinese, correct? Yes. Yeah, I, I can. I can say, given uh, given my culture and uh, family tradition, uh, even 
even thinking about a couple generations back, I don't think I knew any family members that were <laughs> hugging trees. I'm wondering if it's, uh, if, if, if there's anything cultural to that, or if maybe that was, um, something very idiosyncratic that you happen to, to witness, or I'm, I'm not sure if this is a practice that they do frequently, these particular yeah. women. It's oh, you know what? I'm, I'm googling it right now. It's the Japanese practice of forest bathing. That's what they call it. Um, the Japanese practice of for, forest bathing is proven to lower heart rate and blood pressure, reduce stress hormone production, boost the immune system, and improve overall feelings of well-being. Interesting. So uh, it's the it's like mindfulness. It's a maybe a version of that where. There's this um, uh, moment of acknowledging the present self and experiencing the body and the tree is a conduit to that. Like the tree allows for a person to to get to that place. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I should try it. I think that <laughs> I mean there's lots of trees on campus. Maybe I should just <laughs> just try this out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll def- I'm sure people will. Uh, it'll be a lot of photos taken and some memes made. <laughs> it could be a thing. It could be a it new could be a thing. thing. For us. The so what? What kind of things do you do uh, to to feel connected um, in your in your everyday life? That's a great question. As you talked about nature, I. I understand it logically. I understand it um, as far as why those kinds of uh, physical sensations are helpful. I'm a little bit more um, in my brain. And so sometimes I have to take moments to think about like, you know, what are these feelings I have? What are these thoughts kind of swirling in my mind? Where's my body right now? So I do think that mindfulness is very, very effective and useful in kind of allowing us to center ourselves in um, grounding ourselves and getting focus. And having said that, I also go back to what we were talking about earlier, in addition to kind of that, that those moments that we can take to ground ourselves and to experience our bodies and to also do that check-in with ourselves as far as like, what am I feeling right now? As a side note, um, I work on a campus that is very, busy. Um, you mentioned what it's like as a college student. Um, you know, it's almost 24 seven. There are always things that are going on on the campus. And I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of events and a lot of experiences that can be very positive, but there are also a lot of experiences that are challenging. Um, we have, um, sociopolitical, uh, you know, kind of, uh, challenges, right? So what's happening in the in the political climate is also uh, permeating into the campus um, figuratively, but also literally. We see protests happen. We see folks um, from um, hate groups come in and use the space to perform an action um, to uh, really to, for no other reason, but to draw attention and, and to, in and, and what I would call uh, to minimize people's experiences or, um, or, or create hate on our campus. And I think, I think that students really are, um, are practicing how to provide their sort of 
mental health well-being check-ins. And that's something that I think is important, whether you're on a campus or not. We are in service to ourselves. We need to routinely check in with ourselves as far as the, the experiences we have and whether um, whether we're, we're okay with where where our bodies are and, and who we're with and what settings we're in. So I do think check-ins are important. I also think that there's, um, you know, in speaking to candid self-care, there's the need to reflect on what our values are. And I think, you know, certainly as professionals, when we're in the different spaces we're in and, and when we have challenges, I think that's really what comes up for me. When I'm practicing self-care, I'm taking a step back and thinking, you know, I'm about to make an important decision or I've been asked to do a thing and it's it's making me, you know, question myself or I feel self-doubt or I feel stressed about something. And what I typically do as an exercise is reflect back on my values and whether those values are being um, honored, whether they're being recognized, whether they're being instilled in in that interaction or in that decision making. And I think that helps me manage moral distress. It helps me manage toxic environments. It helps me manage the preservation of the self. For me, that's my resilience. I look back to why, you know, the why, what is my purpose? Why am I doing this? And bridging the, the fictional worlds, the fandoms, I think that allows me to make that determination swiftly. That's kind of like my code. And that has in recent years really helped me better understand um, where I'm effective and where I'm purposeful and when, when I might be struggling and, and maybe um, should think about uh, where I'm at. You know, that, that was such a, a great answer. I really love that you talked about the, you find resilience in exploring your values and exploring your why because uh, I think a, a lot of times it, when I think about myself and that I get lost in making someone else's why become my why and, you know, taking on someone else's values. And then you get you get lost uh, in the in the shuffle and and uh, and two people can be doing the same things, but for two different reasons. And that's OK. It doesn't uh, you don't have to share the same why as, as long as uh you guys are you're moving in the same uh, direction if that if that's your your desire. So I like that and and also recognizing um, you know the importance of that checking in with yourself is that your values can change over time. What I valued at twenty is different than what I value at thirty and at forty and and so on and so forth. So to definitely check in with your your why why are you doing this? You know even if not just for today but to to, uh, to explore that and, and be in tune. Absolutely. Sometimes I, I provide a little bit of like, um, advising, uh, around like careers and, and young people who are considering different intersections of certain professions and wondering how they can make a difference. And, um, and I give them, of course it's a Batman analogy, but I give them my, um, kind of my explanation about this, this Batman syndrome or this Batman idea, uh, that he truly believes he's the only person who can do the things that he does, that he is uniquely suited, uniquely equipped, uniquely individually resilient to manage, um, the situations that he's in. And so he readily goes into his work kind of with that, 
you know, that confidence, a, a tad, uh, a little bit of narcissism, um, right. To kind of keep, keep him, um, within that confidence, but also this, this strong conviction that he is the right person for that job. And I feel like that's really important for us as, um, certainly as people who are, um, journeying through different professions and advancing through different chapters in our lives and wondering like, is this the job I want? Is this the relationship I want? Is this where I want to be? Is this my why? And I think that, um, you know, fully understanding what that, what that Batman kind of concept is for them can be helpful. This idea that like, yes, this is, this is what I should be doing, or this is what's right for me because nobody else, I'm uniquely suited, uniquely passionate about this particular endeavor. And it feels right. Batman has daddy issues, right? I mean, if we're just breaking this down, it's like, I just, I realize all these superheroes have daddy issues. Superman, Batman, Joker, like their fathers weren't around. And if their father was around, he died when they were young. Like they, it's just, it's a, it's a series of, 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 uh, they're all different levels of daddy issues, uh, with these guys. Um, but I, I love when I watched your talk, you talked about the melancholy of Batman. Mm-hmm. Can you melancholy is one of those things that is not I, I think is not talked about enough. Um, I think, um, you know, in society, we uh, mental health bud, buzzwords catch on. So it's like I'm either angry or depressed or, um, um, you know, um, anxious and nobody's talking about I'm hurt or bothered or disheartened. Like the the, the emotional vocabulary is so vast. And we've just all latched on to a few. Can you talk to us uh, about melancholy and and how that's is, is that how that's different than depression? Yeah, I mean, I I think it, when I think when you and I talk about depression, and may, may, maybe when most people talk about depression, it's this um, concept of a low mood. It's this concept of of hopelessness and. Um, I, I tend to think that that the code there is about neurobiology. Um, and then with melancholy, I think there's um, there's a relational aspect there. Um, that's sort of my take on it, that there's this, um, it's sort of not really living just in the individual, that this is a dynamic experience, this interaction between the self and um, and their, their landscape through their lens, what they're seeing. And I think that that means that they're, um, they're seeing their surroundings, they're seeing their relationships, the sense of self, the sense of future as, um, as hopeless, as disappointing. And, um, and, and typically I'm thinking back to Batman, there's an acceptance of this. There's kind of settling into this persona um, so it becomes pervasive. It becomes longstanding. It's it's a it's less of a um, it's less of a moment. It's more of a state that we're in. And I think that um, I think that differs. I know that we've brought up this particular character a few times, but 
it reminds me of, um, you know, I mentioned the word relational. Sometimes I talk about parasocial relationships and I'm referring to um, a pretty healthy, non-delusional connection that one might have to a fictional character. And you and I might be connected to Batman in this way. Like when I think about his mood state or I think about his melancholy, uh, it, it, I have this mirror reflection. I have this kind of, um, almost this like visceral reaction to that because I'm so connected to this character. I now understand what that experience is like. And so for people who found the fandom that they're really into that, you know, the thing that really sparked their love for TV or movies or books or whatever, whether that's Harry Potter or star Wars or comic books. Um, I think that when we have those experiences, we should really embrace and, and be curious about the opportunity to learn emotionally. And, and that's, that's what Batman's world has kind of done for me is that because I have a parasocial relationship with this character, then I can, um, I can better tap into my own feelings of, uh, loss, grief, uh, trauma, melancholy, and I can work through those emotions. I can experience some of those things in ways that, um, that might be accessible to me, might make me more curious about it, might make me more introspective than maybe other less safe interactions that I might not approach. So I think, you know, you've listened to my Ted talk. I think that growing up, I felt that fictional characters, um, were kind of like something that children should be into. You know, as I got older, I worried that, that, um, that my fans were, would not be accepted or acceptable, uh, as an adult by my peers or, or, or by, um, you know, my professional colleagues. And I found that that's not true at all. I found that, that our connections to fictional characters, our parasocial relationships are actually like wonderful pathways into learning more about our emotions. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's just now, I think, um, I forget the, who the, uh, the comic, uh, book writer is, but he just received a, uh, not a Pulitzer, but it was some type of, Maybe it was a Pulitzer, but it's some type of writing award that they never give to comic book writers because comic books are like the porn of the literary uh, industry, and it is looked down upon, and is now just getting the the street cred uh, or the unstreet cred that it that it deserves. Yeah. And and I think that <clears throat> say what you want, but there's. In order for us to be emotionally connected to these characters, they have to resonate on some way. Uh, there has to be some sense of us seeing ourselves in them and their experiences uh, in ours. Um, and uh, so you can't discount that, right? It, it, right. And I think that um, that's why the movie The Joker was like, it caused such an uproar online. Because people were like, it's too dark, it's too this, it's too that. And then some people were like, no, this is real. Like, that, like you know, some guy walking down the street, he gets beat up in the alley. Like, that stuff happens. The the mom, you know, being a junkie, like, all those things. Like, this isn't, we're not just talking about a movie here, people. Like, this is, this is someone's life mm-hmm. or parts of different people's lives that we're looking at um, in, in two hours. 
how and and this you know not to put you on the spot but a lot of kids saw this movie and they saw it without their parents how would uh a, how would a parent talk to their kid about a movie like the joker does that question make sense it does you know i i and i was asked this question uh i i um I was a panelist at uh, LA Comic Con back in October of last year around the Joker, like not just the Joker as a character, the movie, the Joker that had just come out because this was in October. And um, uh, my friend uh, who runs a history of the Batman podcast, so, so we're like uh, we're like kind of combining podcasts, psychology and history of Batman. It was really cool. She, she was essentially the moderator and she interviewed me about this movie and, and the psychological themes, but also what you're talking about, like the impact of a movie like this. And I think there, there are two levels of narrative, right? One is the, the story itself and what that means. And then the other is our, our relationship with that story. And recently I was I was interviewed by the LA times and they had said, you know, like, don't you think, you know, what do you think about this movie being made? Should this have not been made? And I reflected on that. And and I think that it, you know, as a psychologist, most of the time it's not necessarily imperative for me to, um, to censor or limit, uh, entertainment to, to to try to understand media in a sense of whether something should be available or not. I think that I'm, 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 I'm in better service to people when I, um, when I can actually just allow a conversation or open up a conversation about the film or the comic or the TV show that brought up these, um, threatening, confusing, uh, divisive themes, right? Like I'm not here to say something should not have been made. I feel like I'm here to to talk about like, okay, let's talk about that. This movie created a lot of um, a lot of talk. Like people were on one side or another. There was chatter. There was, you know, provoked a lot of debates. People were very upset, and um, and and people also said this movie would incite violence. That we have a you know like this public responsibility to ensure that people would not see this movie. And so, what I told um, going back to Comic Con, somebody had asked me this question, and there was like a room for maybe like five hundred people, three three hundred to five hundred people. I can't remember, but. It was jam packed, and and people were, you know, standing in the back of the room. Um, the the door and the the doors were closed, and the door one of the doors in the back slowly opened as I was being asked, like, is this movie so violent that it will create killers? And then slowly the back door opened, and this man with a Joker mask, like, slowly peeked into the room <laughs> and the audience doesn't see this. I'm just staring at the back of the room. Like what, like what's going on right now. And I just had a moment. I'm about to say, no, I'm about to say one single piece of art does not, you know, instill violence. Um, we have an entire, you know, we have social layers of factors that influence violence and a single movie cannot be responsible. And yet I look at this like, um, figure, this, this, you know, 
Joker figure slowly creeping into the room. And then there was um there was a staff member, Omicron shirt, that pulled up her hand and said, you know, this room's full, you have to leave. And he didn't get into the room. Uh, but the reason I share that is that, you know, yeah, this this I can logically say that a single piece of art doesn't um, you know, it, it shouldn't be responsible for um for violence, but I'm also fearful of of what um, what's happening in our society as far as uh, gun violence and uh, mass shootings. And what I can say in direct response to your question about children is that I would say this is not a film for children. I would not recommend children under 12 seeing this movie because there are a lot of different layers to it. Um, and... I, I think it, I don't think that's the audience. If a child has seen the movie, then yeah, let's talk about that. You know, what did it mean for this poor man to not receive the things that he was literally asking for? Um, who are the bad guys in this movie? Uh, what what was you know to kind of just? I know I don't have the right answer, but I think kind of allowing for a conversation and just creating the opportunity to instill the values that that those parents, you know, hypothetically care about, I think that can do, uh, that can, that can create a lot more protective factors than simply telling us that our kids shouldn't see movies like this. Um, but what this movie did allow for is for people like you and me to, to talk about issues like, uh, mental health and the relationship between mental illness and violence, for instance, or, the um, the consequences of poor um, mental health systems or unregulated, underfunded mental health systems. What is what does it mean to not have access to treatment, and what does it mean that some people get it and some people can't? And I think that those conversations are um, are incredibly valuable for us to have for us to kind of put out into the world. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that, you know, what I what I really love that you said is um, asking the question, who who are the bad guys in the movie? Because it's so easy to be like, oh, it's a joke, a movie about the Joker and the violence he incites. But it's there's like from his boss to uh, his co-workers, to his parents, to, you know, there to those kids who beat him up, on, you know, as he was flipping a sign in the very beginning. Um, you, you recognize we're all responsible and uh, and contributing uh, to the to the things that we see on some level, uh, uh, whether it's passively and not doing anything or actively in, in doing something and, and, and inciting. It, it really it really is one of those movies where it's you're right. It's more about asking more questions than it is providing answers. Um, the question that I have for you now is, uh, you know, being on a college campus, suicide rates seem to be increasing on uh, college campuses. Um, I, I, you know, I, I know every campus is different. I don't know what it is at, at UCLA. But can you talk to us about, because uh, you mentioned it at the, at the top, in terms of what are the preventative measures? And then what do you do with someone who has attempted? Like, because you talked about that continuum of care, and it, it's you know the the this, this, the research is changing so much about what to do with someone when once they've attempted 
And then what are those, what are the next three to five steps look like so that it's their uh, last attempt, hopefully? Yeah. You know, I I think the first thing that that is um, hopefully well understood by the public, but but may may need more dialogue around is the idea that suicide prevention is incredibly complicated and that it's not tied to a single disorder, a single type of person. Um, you know, there's no discrimination uh, as far as suicide goes. There's um, there's in a very scary way, like you know, everyone is susceptible to the risk of suicide, but to speak to the, um, the effective ways to address suicide and to think about how, um, how to create more resources and services for folks at risk. I think one of the most important things right now is, um, education and prevention. And what, what that entails, of course, is we got to shift the culture a little bit. I think historically, especially in educational institutions and um, and in a lot of communities, there's this there's this myth that only professionals should be talking about this. Only professionals in clinics or hospitals uh, should be addressing this. And and the reality is that um, the majority of people who do die from suicide were not known by those experts, the psychiatrists and psychologists, the the counselors. Most of those people who were at high risk were uh, potentially telling their peers, their loved ones, the people in their cohorts uh, in in terms of, you know, the campus uh, setting, maybe other students. And so one of the shifts that we're starting to see across campuses is um, an increase, an elevation of education and awareness around suicide. So that happens with engaging faculty um, you know, put some resources on your syllabus, for instance. It happens with, um, you know, residential life communities have um, building directors and residential directors be well-educated around suicide prevention um, and, and intervention, you know, what to look for and, and how to respond. And I think certainly with peers, so student to student, how are we engaging, educating, and then kind of equipping other students to recognize those signs of distress and to feel, you know, it's never going to be comfortable. It's never going to be something that feels good. Um, it's always going to be anxiety provoking. It's, it's, you know, I've been doing this work for a long time and I ask about suicide probably every day. And every time I ask the question, I'm nervous and it's hard. Um, and so I think just being real with students and saying, you know, you're probably never going to feel a hundred percent confident in doing this, but we want you to at least have competence, some level of understanding, some skill that you feel good about. Um, you know, for me, when I talk about, um, skill building, I think about, uh, going back to Batman, of course, I think about a utility belt and how, um, he doesn't just have the battering because that one battering can't do certain things. He has the line launcher. He has the grapple hook. He has, um, you know, the smoke bomb. He has all these different types of techniques and tools and equipment to get him out of situations or to help other people to create safety. And so 
Um, while the suicide program doesn't include Batman, which I kind of wish it did, uh, it, it employs some of those ideas around skill building and the concept of, um, creating a tool, you know, a tool set using various tools to manage, uh, you know, to recognize, manage and respond to, uh, to risk. So I think education and, um, and awareness is extremely important. Um, but you mentioned, the students or the the young people who've um, who are at higher risk because maybe they've already attempted, and so postvention and um, creating resources for those higher levels of care are really important as well. And I think that um, that we have to think about those different uh, those different capacities and the different needs across that continuum. And I think one of the the things you know to mention here, lastly, about your question is that. I think we have to get real with the concept that finishing or graduating or getting a degree, you know, doing a th- setting, a, doing a thing you set out for, sometimes that doesn't work out and that's okay. It's not worth your life. Mm. And that's a conversation that's hard because we, you know, we instill in our culture this concept that um, everybody should go to college and everybody should go to the best college whatever that means, everyone should finish. Um, but I like to introduce the concepts of taking breaks, taking time off, managing your self care or your mental health, and sometimes even changing course. Sometimes that might be the best for you. And so we, we, we do have to introduce those ideas of, um, you know, if it's more important, if it's a priority to, um, to take a break from academics and really focus on, on, um, someone's health uh, health care and mental health care that should really be championed yeah i mean you look at the in europe they take a gap year between high school and college and you know they travel the world they gain experiences and they explore who they are as an individual and as a person and their likes and dislikes and you know it's kind of the the, the parent bird kicking the baby bird out the nest for a year and, and you know they backpack and and they also have socialism, so their college is paid for. So they're not, you know, it's a, it's a, it, financially, it's a bit easier uh, for them to do that. But yeah, this, it's if people are afraid to quit or pivot, you know that that was the that was a big buzzword for a long time. I was so tired. Oh, I'm just going to pivot. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but but you're right because you watch any of these social media, YouTube, you know, and, and they're all doing it with the with the right intention in terms of trying to motivate people and push people. Um, but at the same time, you, you go to uh, like uh, Spain and they have siestas. Is it? Si- yeah. Siesta, the, the little midday two hour, everything shuts down for two hours and they and they take a nap and take a break. And 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 it's interesting because people will immediately point to, well, that's why Spain's not a superpower. And that's why they have all these issues. But I was like, but they also feel like they belong and they mm-hmm. feel connected and they, and they, and they, and they have, and they cherish their time with family and other people. And, and we forget that on our rise to greatness um, there, I forget who the Olympian was, but uh, she said, there's nothing more lonely and standing on top of a podium and not having someone to share that with someone, you know, close to you. Mm-hmm. And, 
And I think that's what we see happening. We're, we're all on this treadmill of go, go, go. Um, you, earlier you talked about skill building in terms of suicide prevention or someone who's, can you, can you give us like one or two, if, if Batman had a mental health belt, you know, what would his, uh, you know, I don't, I don't even know what the tools he has, mace or, you know, pepper spray, whatever. <laughs> <Shark> <laughs> yeah. um, wow. He should. And that's a really cool concept. Like if anyone needs it, it's him. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, I think, you know, what I would say to that is that, um, we all have our own, you know, you and I couldn't exchange our utility belts. Like we would have very different things, right? You need the shark repellent because maybe you handle sharks. I need the the smoke bomb because I have to get out of situations quickly and discreetly. And, Something you know, to tell me, <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, but right. But like we would have we would have very different utility belts and, um, and that's something I embrace. Like, you know, I think all of us should take a moment sometimes and think about like, what are those, what are those different strategies that I need to equip myself with to, um, to get myself out of trouble, to self-regulate and to help other people. Um, and, and I think it's, it's a good exercise. Like think of the different things that you could, you could put in that utility belt. Um, in terms of addressing, high risk situations like people in distress and suicide risk, I do think that um, one really important uh, tool there is approach. Um, A lot of us know of somebody who is looking a little different. They might be apathetic. Their hygiene might be different. Um, They might not be taking care of themselves or they may say some things that worry us. Um, And so one of the skills that, that we should be building and working toward is how do I approach someone and um, inquire about their well-being? How do I ask about that? What does that look like? And so with students, we we address that pretty directly. We acknowledge that suicide is a concept, is a word, is an idea that is scary and that traditionally we think that's something that only mental health specialists should be addressing. So we we try to work toward the stigma around that and discuss different ways that we would feel not comfortable, but at least um, at least, you know, willing to to ask about it. And so um, we practice that. So we practice asking how to ask about suicide. Um, you know, someone approached me recently and said the word itself is one that she could never imagine saying because culturally and, you know, in her family, no one would, would say a word like that. And I said, totally, that actually, that's my family. I don't think I would ever, even now, I say the word every day at work, but I don't think I could ever manage to say it in front of my family. It's a deeply personal, cultural, um, uh, you know, uh, concept. And, and so what we'll do then is talk about like, what are the ways, what is a way you could ask about, about suicide without using that word, but also without being, um, without being confusing about it. Cause to say like self-harm or to say not being here, a lot of students will say like, yeah, I want to be at USC. I don't want to be at UCLA. Uh, so we, right. So we have to be pretty direct. And so that's something that we teach be as direct as possible. Use language that you're comfortable with, but that is clear about your intention. Um, and so, another example, like something different than the word suicide in, in a way that you would, uh, recommend to say it. Yeah. 
Um, there's various ways that we could ask about suicide without using the word, but also being direct. Sometimes you could say things like, um, are you thinking about ending your life? Um, are you thinking about, um, I, I was going to say when someone says self-harm, for instance, are you thinking about self-harm or harming yourself? That creates confusion, right? Mm. Because, um, sometimes people self-harm with no intention of killing themselves, right? So um, even if those words, are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of suicide? If those still feel extreme. Sometimes I go at it at the angle of like, you know, sometimes we want to give up. And I wonder if there are times where you just feel like it would be better if you just didn't wake up in the morning. Now, what is that? That means death, right? So that it starts to open that conversation. And if that creates that space for them. It eases tension for them. It increases our tension. We're like freaked out when we ask questions like that, but it actually, it eases tension. And I think there's a, you know, there's this myth, there's this weird idea that if, if we ask, we're implanting an idea in someone's head and they're going to go and do it. But the reality is when we say it and when we're clear, uh, sometimes people feel seen. They feel like, oh, you're willing to get in that space with me. And sometimes that will decrease their tension and increase their willingness to talk about it and certainly decreases stigma because it's showing like, I'm willing to talk about it and I'm not judging you for it. So I think like right. just, you know, we, we would talk about this one skill about approach and asking, and there's so much there to explore around reducing stigma around creating a space of safety and around even language and how we have to create some level of comfort for ourselves in order to be, to be in that kind of um, dialogue with somebody. What got you into psychology? Like what, 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 what's, what's your backstory? Comic books. Like, honestly, it's it, looking back. I don't think I really connected that, but um being a fan of uh, Batman and watching, you know, the animated series, like thinking about early nineties, um, X-Men show, Batman show, like the stuff that at the time got away with so much. I, I actually recently wrote about the Harley Quinn character from the animated series. So the very original, the very first portrayal of Harley Quinn um, who is known as the sidekick to the Joker, the, the types of things that we see her go through in an animated cartoon is so crazy. It, it, when I say that, I just mean like they show so much, they show her being abused. They show her engage in violence. They show her go in and out of jail. They show her getting treatment for mental health. Um, there's an incredible amount of, of, uh, just this rich topics around kind of, you know, relationships, trauma, intimate partner violence, um, sensation seeking, um, risky behavior. Some of the things we talked about earlier, right? Um, a willingness to die, willingness to to be in really, you know, dangerous situations. And um, I, in reflecting on that show, I, I, this is, you know, honestly, what brought me into having a podcast about the show is the idea that growing up, I was really fascinated by 
the experiences that comic book characters would go through and especially the types of um, portrayals related to villains and how, you know, certainly as young people, we are drawn to evil characters. We're drawn to the dark heroes and we're certainly drawn to villains who we know are doing bad things, but we just begin to associate them as role models. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I think that was kind of the start of my journey into psychology was like, okay, we've got to understand what motivates that kind of behavior, what creates a pathway toward destruction, um, how, you know, why do people do the things that they do? And, and essentially that's clinical psychology. Uh, that, yeah, that makes so much like that. The new Birds of Prey is, is looks so good. I'm excited to watch it, and uh, and I, and I appreciate you taking time to explore that because it, there really are so many things that we can learn about ourselves and society uh, from watching it. When you uh, last couple questions, um, you uh, because you're so accomplished, and you know going to Cornell. And, you know, you're at UCLA and, and, and you have a podcast uh, that's reached over a million downloads and, and you know, like in your blogging, like you're doing a lot. And I think the look on your face tells me that you don't think <laughs> that you're, you're just like, this is, you know, you, you should meet my sister. She's like run a marathon and, you know. Well, my sister eight. does. My sister does the costumes on the show, The Masked Singer. Oh, so really? This is. You got like the dinner table when we visit family is like she she does she's awesome she we're like two different parts of the brain right wow um, but yeah the look on my face is yeah I I need that sometimes just that validation that that realizing a lot of the different chapters in my life and and how um, I've come to a place where I I feel I I did reach that um, that Batman syndrome the healthy version of the Batman syndrome which is like I think I'm doing what what I can uniquely do. I think I'm doing the things I'm going into spaces. I'm starting dialogues. I'm, uh, I'm creating, uh, I'm creating things that, that I think I'm uniquely suited to do. And I will resist anyone who says like, you should stop doing that because you're burnt out or you should stop doing that. Cause you know, it's, um, it's challenging in the same way that people tell Batman, you know, you've got to rest, you've got to sleep, you have to, um, you have to take care of yourself. And he pushes back and says like, if I don't do this, who will, this is really what I'm supposed to be doing. And, um, and so to hear you kind of, you know, kind of, uh, state that golden thread of what's keeping this together, I, I think it's quite validating, um, for me. So thank you for mentioning that. Absolutely. You know, I was, I'm reading this book right now, the, the neuroscience of suicidality. Um, it was just published uh, a few years ago, I think, because a lot of the research in it is like 2017, 2016. So it's, it's new. But he was talking about how uh, when people start to feel hopeless, um, it's, it's not that they don't think that things will get worse, it's that they don't see how things can get better. And and so his antidote was to write down 10 things you look, you look forward to to. And I was like, wow, like that was exercise. But I bring it up because it's like you said, like we do all these things and we have all these things in play and we forget about it or we dismiss it or, you know, we don't think it's quite enough or or we feel like we're an imposter 
or, you know, somebody else could do this. And we have to remind ourselves consistently because the the amygdala is is bigger than the prefrontal cortex. So it's, it's firing off all the reasons why you shouldn't be doing this and all the reasons why uh, you should be hopeless and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so it was just it's just a reminder of we we all struggle with the same thing, no matter what level of success uh, we are, because I would love to have over a million downloads. But we're working on it. We're getting there. <laughs> you'll get there. You'll, absolutely. You'll get there. I mean, I was just thinking about um the, you know, how we're wired, um, some of us, especially if we struggle with imposter syndrome, but I could get 99, you know, positive affirmations, like really nice praise. And then the one person who, who tweets me and says like, you know, like, well, Batman's not even real <laughs> you talking about, or, or, you know, like sometimes the, on occasions, like there'll be a person who will say, um, what I'm doing is useless mm. or, you know, I'll, I'll try to, create a dialogue or, or posit a question about mental health and a comic book character. And, you know, that one guy when someone's a guy too, why, why? Um, but they'll say, you know, and I think that's a part of the culture too. Um, and wrapped in my imposter syndrome is that I know that as a woman of color, um, there are, uh, expectations about me and some of those expectations are, are low. Some of those expectations are negative and so then when, when somebody does, uh, comment at me or put me down through social media, it's, you know, I amplify it and, and put a lot of weight on that because of some, you know, some belief that at some level they're speaking the truth. Um, and that's incredibly self-damaging. It's, it's, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily something that, um, I feel like I should be entertaining, but I think it's natural for us to look at some of those negative things and and really get down on ourselves for them. It's true because you know even as a comedian when I'm on stage, if, even when I have the entire audience laughing, I only notice the one person with their arms crossed, and I'm just like, "What's going on?" You know, like, "Why can't I make that person?" And then it becomes my whole mission. Uh, but it, it actually used to be, and now I just I'm like, well, "That person probably had a long day." Or he doesn't like his wife, or you know, I make up some story as to why it's not me. It's because it, it is not about me. It's about what that person's going through, um, and at some point, either they'll get on board or they won't. And you know, it doesn't change the course of what I'm doing. Um, I have two more questions for you, if we, we had time. We do. Uh, you talked about sleep hygiene. What is your recommended, you know, what's your sleep hygiene or what's your recommended sleep? You know, what, what, you know, what, cause you look good. Like I, I, you know, for everything you've done, you look young, you know, so, you, you know, you got your, your eyes are clear, the teeth are white. So you, you, you know, you're in good shape, you know, from I what a, I can see. I have a ring light. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, it, it doesn't knock off a hundred pounds. So clearly you, you're doing something. You, you're drinking water first. What you drinking? Like eucalyptus water? <laughs> uh, some kind of infused, special yeah. <laughs> infused water. Um, you know, I try just like anyone else. I, I try. Um, I will say that, um, when you're a mental health specialist, uh, there's the pressure to, uh, there's the pressure to be on top of your game when it comes to things like self-care and sleep hygiene. Um, for sure. I know that getting at least eight hours of sleep every night is 
what's going to keep me energetic and attuned to everything. Um, I don't always get that amount of sleep. So, um, if, if something is, is, if something is, uh, I would say another priority that, that might, that might intercept my ability to get sleep. But, um, that's what I would recommend to people. And I said before, like, it's the most uninteresting, uh, self-care tip, but get eight or nine hours of sleep every night. The people that say, Oh, I only need two hours or three hours of sleep and I'm good. Imagine how awesome they would be if they got those eight hours of sleep. Like it, it, it's a neurobiological, uh, reality that we just need to confront. Um, about a year, was it a year ago? Last summer, I was giving a presentation about self-care and one of the things that I would the audience was the amount of sleep we get and, and how important sleep is. Um, and I talked about the concept of the, the all-nighter. You mentioned this too, like not going to bed at all, the all-nighter and how much you can get done in that period of time. And my analogy was like, you know, it's a fallacy that you can get that time back. It's a fallacy that you can catch up on sleep. Once you lose those eight hours of sleep, there is no repair for that. You've lost the opportunity to restore, um, you know, the, the neurobiological stress model. And, um, when I shared that, I said, I said that, you know, this is an end game. You can't go back, um, and, you know, get the, um, you know, go back to those parts of our history and put the things together and things are going to be right again. There's no, there's no, um, you know, Captain America, there's no group. There's, and I was like, and there's definitely no Tony Stark. And I'd forgotten that that was way too early, way too early to talk about the death of Tony Stark. And some people were mortified by that analogy. Um, but I was really trying to, to really sink, you know, get them to, I, I was really trying to drill this idea which is that, um, we can't get that time back. Um, and so I, I think that sleep is, is very important. It's important to me, um, as well. Uh, the other things that I do, I try to exercise a few times a week. Um, I, I try to spin, I have a Peloton bike. Um, if any, if anyone tries to go, have you, have you ever been to a spin class in LA? Oh yeah. It's intense. It's loud. I mean, it's like, yeah, I'm, um, I've lost a thousand pounds, but I also lost my hearing. So, <laughs> it's so, like no. going, going to a spin class is a thing you like when I went one time I went to a spin class in Hollywood and, um, all the, it was like 8am, but all the, the folks in there were all done up, ready to be, um, on camera, hair, all slick and glossy makeup, perfect, um, camera ready level, uh, clothes were, you know, like runway gym clothes. Like no one was there in their sweats and their hair and just a sloppy ponytail. Everyone was like ready. And then of course, like you said, the class themselves, the class itself was intense and, um, there, it's a great way to get exercise, but, um, I, I was, um, excited to get a Peloton because I could, um, I could just exercise, you know, in the privacy of my own home in sweatpants and not worry about performing, um, as a human being in in front of other people. So, you know, I think that, I think that, uh, exercise is, um, obviously like, you know, truly something I recommend, but we have to personalize exercise. Um, everyone does something different. Uh, 
And um, you feel like you, know, you get that same endorphin rush of riding the bike by you know by your by yourself on the. I know like you have the screen and it feels like you're in a class. You got the person coaching you on. Versus being in a in a class with other people and the music, does it? Do you feel like you? It, I it, would say my performance anxiety and comparative anxiety is lower. Gotcha. So I might do better in a class mm. in person because I'm looking at the person on my left and right, and because I know that the the instructor can see me. And some instructors even get up off their bike, go up to your bike, and start twisting your dial. Yeah. <laughs> And if anything, I have a rule about, um, you know, touching the bike when I'm on it. Like I have put up a hand, I've put up a signal to instructors who, who I see slowly get off their bike and kind of like toward me, do not touch my bike. I decide, I decide whether I turn this dial. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I think, uh, I would probably, do better in a single class, but I actually, I'm more likely, I'm more likely to do the Peloton at home because it, it's very convenient and I don't have to put on camera ready makeup to, uh, to, to get on my bike. I can just do it. Um, but yeah. And then food, you know, you talked about nutrition and water, like, yes, uh, absolutely. I think I'm, I'm a subscriber to every single kind of, um, meal plan, meal box. I have, um, shakes that come in the mail. I have smoothies that come in the mail. I have, um, you know, all the different meal preps. Um, I can't keep up with it. So, uh, <laughs> sometimes I'm like, Oh man, I have to eat all this food because it's in the, you know, like I've purchased so many of those. Um, but, uh, my husband and I have worked out a system where we, um, you know, we we're intentional about, the, the food that we've ordered and, and how do we kind of, how do we plan ahead? And, and that's actually healthy. I've mentioned this one last thing I'll say about this. Um, some people are more stressed by, um, going to the grocery store, making decisions about food and bringing that food home and then cooking. And I'm one of those people, uh, the amount of stress I might have about a different type of peanut butter is not worth it. I'd rather just spend extra extra money and buy buy something pre plant pre pre decided so that I don't waste that um, indecisive energy on you know on food uh, and and I recognize that that's a privilege right our ability to just kind of order things and have it arrive and and have that decision be made for us but when I talk about self care I bring up those ideas around like if you have the ability to minimize these like little stressors that um, create irritation and annoyances for you, then do it. Like feel good, indulge in that because um, because that means that when it's when when you're ready, when it's time to really stress out over something, let's not make it a, be about peanut butter. Like let's make it be about something more important. <laughs> I love that. That's, that's great advice. It's not make it be about peanut butter. Um, <laughs> And, and and to wrap up, I mean, I have a million things I want to talk to you about, but uh, just uh, um, last question. I ask this of all the guests. Uh, I always feel like there's one person who's listening in who may be on the cusp of ending their life. Uh, before, before you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? Mm. I think I would say to that person, what could keep you alive right now? 
I'm not interested in in making an effort to keep you alive for decades and decades. I just want to know right now, what is, what is that thing? What is that person? What is that pet? What is that um, trip? What is that even something like a TV show or something you're looking potentially looking forward to? What in the moment can keep you alive for now? Um, take the pressure off that the decision has to be what you can do for a long-standing period. Take off the weight of having to make that decision. What is what is something that is meaningful for you just right now? Um, that's what I would say. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for spending your time with us, Dr. Drea Letamende. Um Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself. Remember, this episode is not a substitute for you going to see a therapist, for you calling the number, for you getting help, going to a group. I don't care what group you go to. It doesn't have to be an AA group or a mental. It could be a bike group or a book club. It could uh, a Groupon, any type of group. Go get yourself around people. Your story needs to be heard. We all want to belong. Um, and, uh, we all have the capacity to love and get through, uh, where we are right now. Uh, we don't have to think about two years from now, or five years from now, just, just today. Let's just get the W for today. And then, and we get, get a good night's sleep and then we'll, we'll address tomorrow when it gets here. Uh, thank you for rating it five stars on, uh, iTunes and where can they find you? Where can they find you, doctor? I have a podcast called The Arkham Sessions, all about Batman and psychology with my co-host, Brian Ward. And you can find that pretty much anywhere you find podcasts, Stitcher, iTunes, uh, look us up on Twitter, uh, Arkham Sessions. Um, the best way to uh, to contact me or interact with me is actually on Twitter as well. At Arkham Asylum Doc is my Twitter handle. And then, um, you know, Instagram is also a place where we can interact. Uh, same handle, Arkham Asylum Doc. And um, LinkedIn. If you're on LinkedIn, uh, my my uh, nickname's there, uh, I think. <laughs> like, have I changed everything on, on LinkedIn? Um, LinkedIn is where I get the most trolls. Really? So, yeah, it's so weird. So if you're going to interact with me on LinkedIn, just be kind. Um, I don't know why. I don't I know what's happening. Professionals on LinkedIn. Professionals, was... act, professionals are acting out on LinkedIn. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, I, it's almost like in other media, like it, I think in other social media spaces, um, sometimes the degree or the like, you know, academic, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the outward facing identity sometimes might deter some people from really coming at me, but in LinkedIn, it's like, Oh, we're all professionals. So I'm coming after you. Right. Right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, uh, thank once again, thank you for sharing, uh, your time with us and, and spending time with us. And, uh, 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 and we will talk to you all soon. Peace. <laughs>